Acts 16. We'll be, don't worry, we're not going to cover the entire chapter in depth, so we'll get out before midnight tonight. But we will be looking at, at three different people found in this one chapter. Now, as you're turning there, I do want to ask you to specifically continuing to, pray, to continue to pray for my daughter, Emma. Emma is battling a pretty bad case of pneumonia right now. Uh, she's been stable over the last day or two. We're still taking care of her at home and pray that we'll be able to continue to do that. So just pray that God will get her over this next little hurdle and she'll continue to do well. So pray specifically for God to heal her of this pneumonia. And I also want to remind you again that we are in a time from now till Easter when we are collecting the Annie Armstrong offering for North American missions. We have set a goal as a church to raise $16,000 over and above our regular giving. And that's a big goal. But we serve a big God who can do things through His people when His people are willing to say, Lord, here I am, use me. Now to date, $470 has been given. That's all right. We just started last week. And we're going up until Easter. But I want to challenge you to do something. Would you be willing to pray a risky prayer and ask God, Lord, what would you have me give up so I can give to North American missions? The Lord may say, you know what? Give up eating one time, eating out one time a week and take that money and give that to missions. That may be $50, and that's just if you eat at Chick-fil-A for a family of four. But to say, you know what? If from now till Easter, which is approximately five weeks away, if you were to give $50 over five weeks, that's $250, and then you multiply that. So please be giving to this offering, because we should never underestimate what God can do through a people who are totally committed to Him. And I would go one step further. Never underestimate what God can do through one person that's willing to say, Lord, here I am, use me. There are many examples that I could give you of such people throughout church history, but one in particular stands out, and that is a man by the name of Edward Kimball. He lived in Detroit, Michigan in the year 1854. He was somebody that, other, other than, you know, history wouldn't take note of him. He was a simple man teaching Sunday school in a church. He taught teenage, teenage boys. And one day, one Sunday, there was a 17-year-old boy who came with a friend to visit his Sunday school class. And for some reason, Kimball could not get this young man out of his mind. This young man was kind of antagonistic. You could tell by the body language that he really didn't want to be there. But for some reason, Edward Kimball kept thinking, and God placed this young man on his heart. So Edward Kimball, during that week, goes to the shoe shop where Dwight Moody is working. Witnesses to this 17-year-old Dwight L. Moody, and Dwight L. Moody is saved. Now, if you're not familiar with Dwight Moody, Dwight Moody was Billy Graham before there was Billy Graham. Preached to millions around the world. Was the founder of Moody Bible Institute. But that's not the end of the story. See, there was another man who began working with Dwight Moody. A man by the name of John Wilbur Chapman. Chapman was an evangelist and, and would begin preaching alongside Moody at times. And one time when Chapman was preaching, a young man walked the aisle by the name of Billy Sunday. Another evangelist in the early part of the 20th century. In one of Billy Sunday's sermons... A young man walked the aisle by the name of Mordecai Ham. Now, you don't forget a name like Mordecai Ham. Mordecai Ham was called to preach. 
he began a series of evangelistic meetings around the nation. And one night he was preaching in Charlotte, North Carolina. And Mordecai Ham was preaching that night and he gave the invitation. A tall, lanky, North Carolinian teenager by the name of Billy Graham walked the aisle. Do you see the line of one? From Edward Kimball, Dwight Moody, to Chapman, to Mordecai Ham, to Billy Graham, to untold millions. One person seeking to say, Lord, use me. The truth is, you and I have no idea what God can do through us when we really say, Lord, here am I, use me. We have no idea the number of people whose lives can be changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's our prayer today, that people will be changed by the gospel as we embark upon this who's your one emphasis. Now, the strategy is very simple. Last week, I asked you to begin praying about, praying about and thinking through who is one person that God is laying on your mind. Lord, who is the one you have for me to share? It may be a family member, a friend, a co-worker, somebody you've known for years, or it may be that lady at the restaurant that's always your server. But God is laying that one person on your heart and mind. Now, what we're going to ask you to do at the end of the day, and this bookmark is in your bulletin, at the end of this message, if God has laid someone on your heart, what we're going to ask you to do is to write their name on the spot where it says, who's your one? You're going to tear that out, and you're going to drop that little card in one of the three baskets at the foot of the cross. You're going to keep this card as a reminder to pray for them. And there's scripture to guide you in praying for them all throughout the, the next 30 days as we approach Easter. You see, today really begins the process. Because after we put their names at the foot of the cross, we're going to begin praying. We begin praying, and you know what we do after that? We pray, and then we pray more, and we trust that God is going to be at work. That is why not only will you keep this bookmark as a reminder to pray, but as you leave today, I want to ask you to pick up one of these booklets. This is a 30-day devotional that you can read a devotion each day, and it is structured in such a way that the Scripture passage coincides with what's on this card, and you will pray based upon that verse of Scripture, that passage, for the one person that God has laid upon your heart. And you can write out what God is saying to you, maybe praying something specific for that person. So we are going to bathe that person in prayer. We're going to get on our knees before God so that when God swings at them, they won't know what hit them because we got out of the way and said, Lord, do your work in their lives. Now, our goal is twofold. As we pray for these people, we are praying for an opportunity to share the gospel. The second goal is this, to invite them to come to church on Easter Sunday morning. Share the gospel and just invite them to come to church on Easter Sunday. Now, I know that when I mention sharing the gospel, there's a level of fear and guilt that arises. Guilt because we know we ought to be doing it. And fear because we may actually have to do it. We don't know what to say or what to do or what, what, what would the God have me say to this person to lead them to faith. This week, Chris showed me a tool that can be very helpful in doing this. And I want to share it with you this morning because I thought it is a very simple presentation of the gospel. This comes from Pastor Jimmy Scroggins. He's the lead pastor at Family Church in West Palm Beach, Florida. And I want to encourage you as you watch this to do your best to take notes so that you could use that. So would you please begin playing the video clip at this time?
Hey, it's Jimmy Scroggins again, working on our Gospel Conversations training. And I want to give you an example that you can maybe follow as you try to get ready to get reps to share the Gospel of Jesus. So I'm going to show you the three circles, just the Gospel piece right now on the board. The Bible tells us that God has a design for our lives, that God cares about every aspect of our lives. That's our families, that's our personal lives, that's our choices, our money, our sex life. Really everything about our life, God has a design for it. If we live according to God's design, then we have the opportunity to live in the arena of God's blessing. The problem is that all of us have a tendency to depart from God's design. When we depart from God's design, the Bible has a word for that, and the word is sin. And inevitably, when we sin against God, when we leave His design, we end up in a place that we call brokenness. Now, all of us know what brokenness feels like. It feels like emptiness. It feels like guilt. It feels like rejection. It feels like shame. It feels like regret. But when we get in this place of brokenness, we always try to fix it. So we try to maybe dive into a different relationship or try to make more money or try to become more religious. But whatever we do, we try to mitigate the pain of our brokenness. We try to escape our brokenness in some way. Now, brokenness really hurts and it feels like a terrible thing. But the truth is it's a good thing because brokenness draws our attention to the need for change in our lives. But the change that we need doesn't come from in here. The change we need comes from somewhere else. The good news is that the Bible tells us where that kind of change comes from. That kind of change comes from what's called the good news or the story of the gospel. Gospel is just the Bible word that means good news. The gospel is the story of Jesus. Jesus, who is the Son of God, who came to earth and he never departed from God's design in any way, not even one time. But Jesus was crucified on the cross for, the Bible says, the sins of the world. That's my sins and your sins. And when Jesus was hanging on the cross, God did a miracle. He took the sins of the world, our sins, and put them on Jesus. And Jesus received the punishment from God for our sins. When he'd done everything that he came to do, he said, it is finished, and he died. They took his body off the cross, they buried him, and three days later, Jesus was raised from the dead. The Bible says that God raised him from the dead to prove that Jesus was who he said he was, the Son of God, and that he could do what he came to do, forgive our sins and heal the broken places in our lives. The kind of change we need doesn't come from in here. The kind of change we need comes from the gospel itself. The Bible says that what we need to do when we find ourselves in brokenness is repent of our sins. In other words, change our heart, change our mind, change our direction, and believe the gospel story. That's the story of Jesus, how he was crucified for our sins and raised from the dead. The Bible says if we'll repent and believe, then Jesus will come into our lives. He'll forgive our sins and begin to heal the broken places in our lives. And then the Bible says that God will give us the opportunity to recover and pursue God's design for our lives. The cool thing about this is that we get to recover and pursue God's design from wherever we are. We don't have to turn back the past. We get to go and believe God and walk with God from right here. Now this is just the gospel piece. There's other things that you need to learn and other things that you need to rep, but I hope that this will help you as you learn to share the gospel of Jesus, turning everyday conversations into gospel conversations. Notes and you were thinking, oh my goodness, I couldn't get all that down. Don't worry, because that presentation is available in an app that you can download on your phone and just tap and go through it. Now, 
it's the, the website's listed up here. And you may be thinking, well, I can't see that well enough. Don't fear. Because tomorrow, every church member of Trinity is going to receive an email with that link in it. So you can download that app to your phone. And you can practice walking through the three circles. Because as you tap the phone, which I'm doing now, it moves you through how to present the gospel using this way. But I also want to emphasize this. We have one gospel, but there may be many ways to share it. You just saw the three circles presentation. Many of us grew up with the Roman road or the four spiritual laws. There are many ways to share the gospel, and we need to have a flexibility to say, Lord, what way, how do I need to share the gospel to best reach this person with the truth? If you'd allow me to use a, a basketball little analogy to make this point. I mean, after all, we are in March Madness, aren't we? Yes. Now, I played center or forward when I was in high school. I was short to do that. I'm 6'3", but I was regularly playing guys that were 6'6", 6'7", and I loved it because I got to get in there and be big, and I used to be quick. So I could outquick them in a lot of ways. And I learned that when I got position, okay, I'm down and I've got the person. If they were on my lower side on the baseline, I got the ball and I spun into the middle. My goodness, I think I hurt myself. I would spin in the middle real quick if they're on baseline side. But guess what? If I've got them posted up and they're on the upper side, I get big, get the ball here, and I go baseline on them. And if they are right behind me, oh, oh, oh I've got them right where I want them. What I did depended on what, where they were. The same goal was in place, get the basketball in the hoop. But I would adjust based on what I needed to do to make that happen. The same is true with presenting the gospel. There's not a one-size-fits-all approach to sharing the one gospel we have. You see this here in the book of Acts, chapter 16. There are three people Paul encountered in Philippi whose lives were changed by the gospel. But these three people were as very different as you could even imagine. Now, Paul, Silas, and Luke are in Philippi, and Philippi is one of the leading cities of this area. I find it very interesting. In fact, it makes me smile when I recognize that Philippi and Johnson City had a lot in common. You see, when Philippi was, was uh, taken over by the Romans, the emperor made it a Roman colony, and he designated it as a place where the retired military men who had served the emperor faithfully in the legions could go to for retirement, Rest and medical treatment. Philippi was a giant VA, basically. So here's Paul. He's going into this city, and he meets this first person. Her name is Lydia. And Lydia demonstrates the reasoned approach to sharing the gospel. Now, her story is in verses 11 through 15. But for right now, look with me at verses 14 through 15. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira. A seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. This passage tells us quite a bit about Lydia. Lydia was a successful businesswoman. We know that from two reasons. One, she was a seller of purple. Now, purple was a, a high commodity at that time that was especially bought by those who were of means because purple was the color of royalty. So if one is engaged in selling purple, you're selling it to a clientele who can afford to pay big bucks. So we know from what she was selling that she made a lot of money. She was successful. 
We also know that because of verse 15. What does she say? Come to my house and stay, which meant that she had plenty of room for Paul, Silas, Luke, and their entourage, and not only room, but servants to help take care of them. So here is the successful businesswoman who Paul encounters. He didn't to anticipate encountering her. You see, when he arrived at Philippi, his standard operating procedure was to go into the synagogue where he would begin witnessing to the Jews and talking to them based upon the Scripture. But here was the problem. Philippi didn't have a synagogue. So Paul heard that there was a place near a river outside of town where people would gather to pray. So that's where Paul goes. And you read this in verse 13. And on the Sabbath, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. See, that's very telling about the spiritual condition of Philippi. It takes ten men to constitute a synagogue. There weren't even 10 God-fearing men willing to form a synagogue. So Paul says, I spoke to the women who had come together. Now notice how Lydia is described. Not only was she a seller of purple, purple, she was a worshiper of God. That meant that although she wasn't Jewish, she had come to believe in Yahweh. So here is Lydia. She is a moral person who believes in God. She is probably well-educated, and she is very successful. That's why I really believe that as Paul began talking to her, her, his approach was a reasoned approach based upon the Scripture, meeting her where she was. I believe that Lydia was that person who could be reached through rational argumentation. She needed to hear the proofs of Christianity. In many ways, she was like a, a professor by the name Holly Ordway. Dr. Ordway teaches now at Houston Baptist University. She's a a professor of apologetics, which means she's a professor of teaching students how to defend the faith. She's written several books. One of them is called Apologetics and the Christian Imagination. But one book she has written is her autobiography, and the title of it is this, Not God's Type, an Atheistic Academic lays down her arms. You see, Dr. Ordway says that even though she was highly educated, she was an atheist and antagonistic toward Christianity. She said that she believed that Christianity was nothing but folk tales and myths and that it was a blemish on modern civilization. She openly admitted that she used to mock Christians. She belittled their faith, intelligence, and their character. However, God was dealing with her. She said, I wasn't looking for God, but there were problems that I kept encountering with my atheistic faith. She said, I began encountering the problem that the naturalistic worldview could not adequately explain the reality of nature in such a way that was coherent. She said, I kept running into this big problem. The universe is here. How could the universe come from nothing? How does something come from nothing? So she started having conversations with a friend of her that was a believer, and he began laying out the rational truths of Christianity. She came to realize that Paul's forthright declaration of Christianity was based on the historical witness of Christ's death and resurrection. And she said the fact was, it was true. And she came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You have friends like Dr. Ordway. You have friends like Lydia. They're good people. They're moral people. 
But to reach them, they need to see radical proof for, for who God is. Rational, logical argumentation. And you may begin to think, Lord, I can't do that. I'm not even sure I can spell logic. I would ask you to remember two things. First is this. God is at work before you even open your mouth. Did you hear that in Dr. Ordway's testimony? She wasn't seeking God, but God was stirring her heart with questions that an atheistic worldview could not answer. And notice with Lydia, she was what? A worshiper of God before she even heard the gospel. God was at work. And the second thing I urge you to remember is this. It is God who opens hearts and minds. Notice what it says in verse 14. The Lord opened her heart. Who opened her heart? The Lord did. It wasn't Paul's persuasive speech. It wasn't the logic of his argument. It wasn't anything else than God. Church, we must remember that God works through us even if we stumble and stutter through a gospel presentation. God is at work. We must remember that success in evangelism is not dependent upon how well we do or being able to answer all the questions. Success is dependent upon the Spirit of God. And if we will go out trusting that God is at work and God will bring glory to His name, it will be over. Okay, fear not. Prepare, absolutely. But know there are those that you will need to reach with a very reasoned, logical explanation of the gospel. But that's not the only approach. A second example is found in verses 16 through 18 where we meet a young lady. Somewhere between the ages of 12 and 17. She demonstrates to us the need to have a what I call a power approach. She's a slave girl. This young lady was part of the lower class. She was exploited. She was powerless. She was an outcast. See, her life was one of manipulation. People used her. She was being used by demonic forces. Look in verse 16. As they were going to the place of prayer, they were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination. She was demon-possessed. The Greek literally reads, she had a python spirit. Now that doesn't mean she was possessed by a snake. The python was a symbol of fortune tellers. The python was assembled with the oracle at Delphi in predicting the future. So this demon presence within her would predict the future, not because the demons know the future, only God does. But remember, Demons have been around for millennia, if not longer. They know patterns. And God himself may have allowed a, a, the Spirit to manipulate things for, his greater, for God's greater glory. She was controlled by this evil spiritual entity. But she was also manipulated by the men that were using her to get rich. Look at verse 16 again. She brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. These men had no interest in her getting well. They could have cared less about her as long as she kept bringing the money in. In fact, it was their loss of income that caused Paul and Silas to be thrown into prison. See, this young woman started mocking Paul, verse 17. She followed Paul and, and the rest of the group crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now here we get a glimpse of how Satan works. Satan is telling the truth here, but he's doing it in such a way to confuse the issue. Now remember, Philippi is a place where the gospel is just now being preached. 
So to the Greeks who were there, these retired military men, their families, when they say the Most High God, you know who they think the Most High God is? Zeus. You see the trickery of the devil? These men are preaching the Most High God, but everybody that hears it thinks it's Zeus. And they're telling you the way of salvation. There were many people preaching a way of salvation then. So Satan is taking what these, these missionaries are doing, and he's twisting it to confuse the issue. And then after a while, look at verse 18. She kept doing this for many days, and Paul, having become greatly annoyed. Isn't it good to know God can use our annoyance for his glory? Some of you may be thinking, I just found my new life verse. Having become greatly annoyed, what does Paul do? He turns and he said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And at that very hour, he came out. Remember the power of God to change a person. Remember that there is no one on this earth beyond the reach of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The person that God has laid on your mind, you may think, Lord, I know you can save anyone, but if you save, if you save this person, Lord, that will be a miracle. Our God is in the miracle business. Understand there is no person whose heart is so hardened that God's power cannot break through that hardness and radically save them. Have the faith that God can do that. In the book, I'm sorry, Russell Moore in one of his blogs wrote about the power of Christ to redeem. Dr. Moore wrote, the next Billy Graham might be drunk right now. The next Jonathan Edwards might be the man driving in front of you with the Darwin Fish bumper decal. The next Charles Wesley might currently be a misogynistic, profanity-spewing hip-hop artist. The next Charles Spurgeon might be managing an abortion clinic today. The next Mother Teresa might be a heroin-addicted porn star this week. The next Augustine of Hippo might be a sexually promiscuous cult member right now, just like the first Augustine of Hippo was. But the Spirit of God can turn all of that around, and God will delight in doing so. Remember the power of God, and remember this also. The power of God displayed in your compassion. What Paul did there, even though he did it under a spirit of annoyance, was an act of compassion to bring freedom to this exploited girl who had been used and abused. That description meets many of the people that you know and maybe the person God has laid on your heart. Their hearts are hard because they have been hurt and used by people. And therefore, there may be a, a layer of anger there. And you know how you break through that? The power of God in compassion. Showing love. That person who is hurting like this young slave girl was needs to know the power of God in compassion. The power of God in that someone cares. They need to know the power of God in that someone is listening to them. So show them the greatest power in the universe, the love of God. See, for some, it's that rational argument. For some, it's compassion, listening, showing them the care. But there's a third approach. And I call this the steady, consistent approach. This is demonstrated by the third person who is saved in Acts chapter 16. He's a Roman jailer. See, as I mentioned earlier, Paul and Silas were arrested. 
The men who lost income because now this slave girl was formerly demon-possessed, they pressed charges against Paul and Silas. These two men, they say to the magistrates, are causing an uproar. They're upsetting the peace. Something's got to be done. So Paul and Silas are arrested, they're beaten, and they're, they're handcuffed and thrown in jail. In fact, the amazing thing is we see in verse 25, look what Paul and Silas are doing. They're just sitting there in jail saying, gloom, despair, and agony on me, aren't they? No. At midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And get this, the other prisoners were listening to them. After all, where are those prisoners going to go? Paul and Silas are thinking, yes, God, we've got a captive audience. That was a bad joke, I admit. But they're praising God. And then God does something amazing. An earthquake happens. The foundations of the prison are shook. And look at the end of verse 26. Immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds are unfastened. When the jailer awoke and he saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and he was about to kill himself. It's interesting, isn't it? More than likely, now if my hypothesis is correct, more than likely this jailer was retired military. Good chance for that. I can't say definitively. But Philippi's a, a place of retired military men. He's a, a civil servant. He's working at the jail. Good chance he's making a little extra income to supplement his retirement by working at the jail. This is the type of man, if he's ex-military, it's, I'm not interested in stories. Don't care about your logic. Show me what works. Show me what works. Show me what's real. That's why it's so interesting that as he's about to kill himself, what happens? He's about to kill himself because losing the prisoners meant not only would he lose his job, he would lose his honor. And everything in this man's life was probably built about honor. Former military, I do what I say, and if I've given an order, I do it. Now he has failed, and his only answer is to end his life until he hears Paul cry out with a loud voice, Don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer, verse 29, calls for the lights. He rushes in and he falls down, trembling with fear. Look at what he says. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What caused him to ask that? I submit to you that it's this. The fact that Paul and Silas had been singing about the glory and the grace of God, I believe in Jesus Christ. And when the time came and they were free, they didn't just run off. They showed they cared for this man. Why did they hang around? I mean, think about it. You're in jail. And it wasn't just Paul and Silas. It's all the other prisoners, too. If your, your, your handcuffs fall off, the doors are open, why not split? I think they stayed as a testimony of the power of God and to reach that jailer. You see... Paul needed to show him that he was in it for the long run. And this jailer saw there had to be something about Jesus because these guys didn't cut and run when they could. They were consistent. They were there. See, the person that God has laid on your heart may be someone you've known for years. And they need to see your life day in and day out. They're not interested in high, fancy, falutin' speech. They just want to know, is this Christianity thing real? And the way we show them it's real is by our character day in and day out. A consistent, simple faith that shows it cares. That's what would draw them. That's what's powerful. In the year 1976, when the Southern Baptist Convention met uh, in June of that year, there were three speakers at the main session. First speaker was Billy Graham. 
The third speaker was a presidential candidate, Jimmy Carter. But the man between them is what was interesting. In between the world-famous evangelist and in between a, a future president of the United States was a truck driver that had been asked to give his testimony. Jimmy Carter writes about it in his, in his autobiography. He said, Billy Graham stood up and he spoke as eloquent and as powerful as ever. And then the truck driver got up. He said, you could tell the truck driver was nervous because when he first started, he was talking in a mumbling like this. But he began to speak up as things went on. He said, the truck driver said, used to, I was always drunk and I didn't have any friends. The only people I knew were men like me who hung around the bars in the town where I lived. But he said, I came to know Jesus Christ as my Savior. I was discipled by a group of men and the Lord laid it on my heart that I wanted to reach my friends for Jesus. My friends weren't about to come to a church and I felt comfortable going into bars. So I decided just to go into bars in my hometown and wait for my friends to come in. And that's what I did. He said the bartender wasn't none too friendly at first. He would tell me to get lost and that I was bad for business and I was a nuisance. But I kept coming back and my friends kept telling, me, telling the bartender to back off a little bit and let him talk to me. He said at first I, they treated me like a joke. But I kept coming back and talking with them. And after a few months, 14 of my friends became Christians. Jimmy Carter said that truck driver's speech was the highlight of the convention. He said, the truth is, nobody remembers what Billy Graham said that night. And nobody remembers what I, President Carter, said that night. But God used a man who had a faithful witness where he was. God can use you. God will use you. And he'll use your personality. Whether it be through a rational argument. There's some of you, God is wired like that. You want to get into the arguments for the existence of God and God's placing people in your path. Others, it's compassion. If there's somebody around you that needs a meal, a word of encouragement, you're there. And others of you, it's consistent, daily Christ-likeness. And God's going to use you to reach the one he's laid on your heart. So now as we come to the invitation, this is what I want to ask you to do. Now, there's no guilt. I only want you to do this if the Lord's laying it on your heart. So please, don't feel like you've got, got to do this. The only reason you should feel like you've got to do it is because the Holy Spirit won't let you not do it. I'm going to ask you to take that bookmark, and you're going to write on it in two places, the first name, of the person God's laid on your heart. You're going to write it at the top of the scriptures. And you will keep this part in your Bible. And this part you will tear off and write their first name on it. In just a moment I'm going to lead us in a prayer. And Chris is going to come. And when we begin singing. I'm going to ask if the Lord's laying somebody on your heart. To come with this part of the card. And lay it in one of these baskets at the foot of the cross. And for the next 30 days we're going to be praying. We're going to be seeking opportunity. We're going to be encouraging one another. Because the work is God's. All right? It's not up to you to be a success or failure. That's in God's hands. Our call is just to be faithful. So if you will, I want to ask you to bow your heads with me right now. Lord, it is your desire that all men come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, I ask you now to begin stirring our hearts to the one that you would have us witness to. 
And Lord, I pray that you'll work in our hearts so that we will not listen to the evil one because the devil is scared to death about a church that prays and takes evangelism seriously. So Lord, I pray. I pray, Father, that you would work through us and demonstrate your power in such a way that people come to be saved and people begin attending church that maybe never would have before. Grant this, Father, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.